Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Low Code Approach. I am not Sean, but with us today we have. I am Wendy Haddad. I am a senior cloud solution architect and a former customer, also not Sean. And if you recognize this voice, yes, I am Ken Aguilard. And with us today we have Tim Robichaud. Tim, how are you doing? Say hello, please. Doing quite well. Thank you for the warm welcome. My name is Tim Robichaud. I'm a principal service engineering manager with Microsoft. And I manage the customer communications for the Power Platform and Dynamics 365 services. What this means in actuality is I'm the person responsible for delivering the bad news when something goes wrong. Tim, I don't think I've ever talked to you when I was still a customer. So that must mean that we're probably doing a really good job, that we have hardly ever have outages or have to say that we're salaried potentially. Question. How do we ensure reliability and health of the power platform and services for our customers? You know, I love that you have that perception of our product because that means we are actually delivering a pretty reliable and healthy service. You know, we have a, a broad strategy for building this fault tolerant service and we've got some principles. They're relatively deep and I'm not going to go down to the granular level, but just in general, we have some key principles that are shared across all of Microsoft. They're built around things like fault isolation and reducing the effect when there is an, an event or incident. Some commitments to how we do our monitoring and we, we, we call it assume fault, right? We have to prove success as opposed to prove failure so we can react very quickly. And we also leverage a bunch of tools and services that Azure has built to ensure that we're delivering a reliable service across multiple infrastructure components so that when there is any kind of blip or dip in service, we can quickly transition over to another set of resources to keep delivering the service at the level folks demand. Just on that point, because the you know there is this hideous complexity within any cloud service and this fleet of different microservices and components and pieces and parts and um, little bricks that we stack together, there is a chance that there is going to be an issue. And when there is, that's when me and my team uh, step in and produce those communications. So Tim, we're in conference season. We just had the Power Platform Conference. It's Ignite Week mm -hmm. this week. And no, we didn't boot Ken or uh, Sean. Well, we're thinking about booting Ken off the podcast. We didn't boot Sean off the podcast. Um, he's actually at Ignite and running some sessions. But, you know, talking to our customers, they, they're they excited about the changes. But I think there's a little bit of, of just fatigue of all the changes and, and innovations coming and really just trying to keep track of it all. So as you're making changes to the platform, what's kind of the source of truth, right? Where should they be thinking? How can they get a, a communication of the upcoming changes? How should they be planning for those changes and kind of what processes would you recommend so that they're not caught off guard, but they're able to adapt and pivot quickly? This is actually a fantastic topic that I love to talk about because when I actually engage with customers one-on-one -on -one, and when we listen to feedback from customers, which is a very important part of my daily activity, we hear a common theme, which is, you know, what's happening in the service? What's coming? What am I going to get excited about? Within Power Platform, we have kind of a tiered structure approach where we have a long-term plan we call the release plan. And many folks are going to be familiar with it, especially in the business world, because that's where we take a long distance view of the kind of roadmap of what's going to deliver, uh, you know, what's going to land in the next six months or so. As we get closer to delivery, that release plan gets converted into individual message center posts. 
So what we do is we use the Microsoft 365 Admin Center component called Message Center to publish upcoming change to customers. We generally try to target about 30 days of notice. So 30 days before something goes live, we want to tell you about it. We want to link to the correct documents on learn.microsoft.com. I mean, we want to kind of give you an understanding of like what value it delivers, like you know, what change is it going to drive into your business? And I'm really excited because the third kind of layer that we're working on implementing is delivering those features into our service update notes. Today, most of the services in Power Platform and Dynamics 365 deliver a list of fixes with every deployment or every bill. We call those the service update notes. And there's a section in there for features. But what we haven't done a great job of is taking that, that feature all the way from that release plan through the message center post into those service update notes. And that's an area of investment over the next several months to the next semester that we're really looking forward to because the visibility of that thread, that, that chain of events, um, is how we can keep customers informed about that huge amount of change that is landing. In addition, we're working with our partners that own that admin center, that own that message center component to build things like relevance, you know, to build better filtering, to give tools to customers to better find the things that are important to them. The final piece I'll say on this is I also know that some folks, they have that flood of those message center items. Within the Power Platform Admin Center, we try to notify administrators when there's upcoming change by filtering that view on the homepage and giving you a little message center card, which is showing only the Power Platform and Dynamics 365 messages. So when you land in the environment to go, you know, manage your, uh, you, you know, manage your resources, manage your environment, you can see those changes that are scoped specifically to the product. And um, we've had a lot of good feedback about that, but we also know there's a lot more improvement that we need to go drive. Yeah, Tim, if I can interject just a few other little things inside of here, being that you and I also work very closely together on the product side, we're also introducing other more, I guess, uh, sort of proactive features to help get messaging across. Uh, one of those things called mm -hmm. known limitations or known... That's actually a slight little different pivot. Um, if you don't mind, I'll take a quick sidestep here to talk a little bit about our communication yes. strategy. What we've done is we've kind of broken up our messaging into two large buckets, and we call that proactive and reactive. Reactive is the thing that most concerns the escalations or the complaints of customers because that's when something breaks. We call that an emerging event. Um, and we communicate that one way. We, we have tools for that. We have processes for that. The proactive communications is the space where we're aspirational. We're looking at, at a hopeful future rather than dealing with an issue or an event. And those proactive communications are talking about service change. These are things that are coming up and new things that we're building or changes to the way certain functions behave, improvements, all of that kind of stuff. The known issues feature is actually being is added to the admin center to help give customers a view of the items okay i'll be i'll be blunt the bugs that we know that we've had these are things that we've discovered or reported after we've launched a feature but we want to let customers know about it so that they can have visibility into the work we're doing to fix it you know one of the things that i think is very frustrating for customers is when they run into an issue they have to ask this question, is it me or is it Microsoft? How do you differentiate between something that 
you've built yourself into versus something that's a limitation with the service and searching through reams and loads of documentation or jumping from admin center to admin center to try and hunt down that differentiation is a huge time sink. And it's a, it, to be blunt, I think it's a waste. So what we're doing is we're taking those things that we know are not working the way we intend them to, and we're putting them within the help plus support page in, in the admin center so that you can go and see those things. And then as they get fixed, you can have confidence that it's no longer going to affect you. And you know, hopefully we'll, it'll prevent you from, you know, like needing to contact support or jumping out of your building an app to go troll through the community or any of those other resources that we have available. Because the time you spend making that determination of, of where the failure is, you could be building a new app with that. I have two questions for you. So I want to double click real fast and clarify something that you said, because you mentioned kind of don't don't have to be pulled out of your experience of building an app. Uh, are these features available for makers or just for admins to be able to see what, what you just kind of mentioned? Yeah, it's something that actually comes up quite often. And it's something of a little bit of a painful topic. So when we think about the information that we share, you know, we have a relationship and, and a, a structure with a company, right? Microsoft works with a company. And the information we share is relevant to the tenant as a whole, right? The entire company. And so we've structured our messages to be delivered to administrators of the service. And that term is a little bit hard to define as we look across the different ownership of different components. So, right, you can have an environment admin, you can have a, a, a system admin within a Dynamics app. You know, there's all these places we use admin, but we've leveraged the role-based access control that Microsoft 365 put in place to govern the service management and license management to also govern the communications. So our communications are delivered to or shown to anyone with that tenant level administrative role. So it could be a power platform administrator. It could be that global or company administrator, could be help desk admin. And there are some very distinct and separate roles just for service messages, right? There's a message center admin. In addition, part of the reason why we like this model and we're continuing to use this is it's actually customizable. So we've worked with some customers in the past who've said, hey, I want to give a group permissions to go view these messages because they're important to this group they shouldn't have the ability to go assign licenses. And we say, great, you have the ability to do that. You have a tool. And kind of lastly, you know, one thing we know is customers do, some customers do love email. So there are controls within those components, that message center and service health, which I haven't talked about yet, that allows customers and administrators specifically to opt into email. And one of the things that we've done is for those upcoming changes, we've said, you know, hey, you can add the email address or a distribution list to this the, this component. So when we publish something, the people that need to know this information will get alerted for it. I would like to add one last little plug because it's a, it's a little bit tangential, but I think it's important to touch on. You know, we're a software company. And one of the things software companies like to do is develop and deliver APIs, right? Advanced programming interfaces. How do you connect to the service to get things without going through that web interface or going through the user, you know, user experience? And our service messages, both the proactive and reactive I talked to, 
are surfaced through an API. We use Microsoft Graph with all of the the cool richness that's built into this product-wide substrate. Uh, you can connect to Graph to read those service messages. And just like I talked about granular permissions in the role model, there's also granular permissions for those service messages. One of the things I've seen folks do in the past, which I think is absolutely phenomenal, is they've taken that API and they've taken that connection and they pull those service messages into their own help desk dashboard. So with a large company and you have an internal help desk, instead of needing to escalate to an admin or escalate to Microsoft, the help desk is empowered to see those messages and solve customer, you know, solve user questions at this, the point of contact instead of going through this long chain of engagement. It, like I said, it's a difficult topic because you know everyone wants to feel like they are the target of everything, but there is a structured approach, again, to help ensure that tenant-specific information is reserved for people that are authorized to make decisions about the tenant. And the people who are building apps and owning resources have the ability to get that information with the approval and authorization of those uh, the, those tenant admins. So while we're on difficult topics, I'm going to pose another one. I'm not sure if I'm posing it to Tim or to Ken or both. So so open question here. Another hot topic I hear all the time, especially as you think about some of the proactive notifications, the communications that we send is, okay, you gave me a, a window or you told me this is rolling out in November, but I don't, it's, if, you know, November 17th, that I don't see it on my, I don't see it on my tenant. So why can't you tell me exactly when it's going to hit my tenant so that I can communicate to my users? And, and if you, so why, and if you can't, what recommendations do we have around helping them plan for the changes? Because we can't give them an exact date. So this might be a bit of a coordinated effort, right? Right here, Wendy, inside of there. Tim, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to jump the line before you just a little bit, because recently we did something a little bit differently with one of our private previews, field tested it, if you will, with some customers. And that is we actually explained in great detail what we call the release train or the release wave, basically when things are going to hit particular geographic regions, i.e. our data centers. I was a little hesitant of doing this at first, honestly, because um, it's a lot of de- it can be a lot of detail, and you're kind of putting yourself on somewhat of a of a hook in in the matter of as a as a general sort of just topic here. If we say something along the lines of "Hey, a private preview will start," I'll just use my own date, the one that I just remembered, um, the 16th of October. Great, that's when the code starts rolling out. So in that particular instance, the first region that we actually hit was Central America, more specifically Brazil. It wasn't until the 27th of October that we were fully rolled out to all regions, which is um, North America was last in this case on 27th. So a full, what is that, 11 days, Wendy, of actually pushing out and moving through the the different geographical regions and so on. So there is a, a process in which we actually do roll things out. Now, secondly, um, Tim made an excellent point earlier. We are a software company and we do have developers, engineers, program managers, and so on. At times, like I'm going to use Ignite as an example, it does cause us to delay potentially shipping things or something along those lines. So bear that in mind that yes, customers often want us to tell them, okay, hey, 
you said the code would be deployed on November 11th, right at 12 p.m. Just please bear with us, folks. We have to uh, sometimes move dates around and so on and so on. Tim, sorry, I might have stolen your 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 thunder there a little bit. No, I, I, I love sharing the microphone because I, like I said, I have to apologize when the service goes down. So getting to partner with someone who's actually invested in the growth and development of the product. Hey, Ruth, they're getting to partner someone who's apologizing for yeah. you. <laughs> I don't, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> I love talking about the that kind of stuff. And actually, I, I want to build on what Ken said and tie it back to the first question that you asked about reliability. And just touch on this real quick. We do, you know, one of the things that we use to help uh, protect the customer experience is a safe deployment rollout, right? We don't just pull a lever and turn something on globally for everyone all at the same time. We stage these deployments to ensure that we're monitoring the performance. We're, we're tracking to make sure that everything is operating as we expect. We watch it as it goes through the ecosystem and uh, is delivering the way that we expected it to because it's really easy to test things at a small scale but when you start rolling it out, there are unpredictable things that may occur. And we want to make sure that we catch those as fast as possible. Now, where the complexity comes into place is there, like Ken was saying, there's tons of different things that are floating around that we're orchestrating, right? And we're, we're like kind of puppet masters pulling these strings of all of these different appendages. Um, and each one may have a different cadence. And so, you know, if you look at through our documentation, you'll find pages where we actually describe that release train or that schedule. And we say, these things, this deployment is happening on this date. This is when it will be in each one of these regions. So like Ken said, hey, we're starting this deployment on you know, October 1st, and then it's a five-week deployment process, again, on the page. And so you can calculate, you can say, oh, well, hey, I'm in this region. It's going to take four weeks. And in addition, going back to the proactive communications, for many of the services, we actually publish the schedule directly to the tenant. So we'll tell you, hey, you're going to be getting an update. We're going to deploy the bits into your data center on this date. And over the next day or two, you'll see it pop up in your environment. So we really try to shrink down that cone to be really specific to the region. And we're still investigating and evaluating different ways to make it environment specific, to be able to say, hey, this thing is lighting up on this environment and when that is live for you. But that's, again, taking this large kind of funnel of items and narrowing the endpoint. But that means that we have to pull everything in more tightly so that we can get to that much more narrow funnel. And um, it's something that we we're planning to do over time but it's not something that's going to be a, a near-term or an instantaneous uh, switch that we're going to flip on. You're going to see those dates start to get more and more precise about the effect on your specific resource or your specific environment. So thanks for taking that. I want to let Ken ask a question, but before I do, just quick quick clarification and follow-up. You mentioned an order of regions. Is that a consistent order of regions? And are we going to publish or share that or... Yeah. Where can people find out what that order is? That's a great question. It varies by product. But if you look at our policies and communication policies for 
uh, Power Platform and Microsoft, uh, Dynamics 365 services. It's on learn.microsoft.com. We actually list out the broad regions that we use for uh, those deployment schedules. And then from there, we actually have links to those service update notes. Um, you can also search for the service update notes for, for our product. And on those service update notes, we actually break down what we call those train stations. So each station of deployment will have listed the region that we're going to go deploy to with the dates that that build is going to go to that region. So we try, again, we really like to work in layers. We really like to cross-link the material together so that the people are not individual users who want to know this, I should say, aren't flooded with just one large giant document that you have to parse through hundreds of pages to find what you need. But you can go find the thing that's relevant for the product you're working on. Power Apps is this, you know, is this huge product, but it's one of a suite, right? It's part of the Power Platform, you know, and I, I think those links are relatively easily discoverable. But if not, I would love to hear feedback because feedback is a gift. I love getting feedback on how we can do better. Yeah, we've, we've said this time and time again at conferences and podcasts and so on. We love feedback, surprisingly, especially the negative ones, right? Tell us what we're doing wrong, right? Make us absolutely make us better. Tim, speaking of making us better. So here's the tough question here, Tim. Today, uh, the world pretty much runs on Microsoft. It runs on top of Windows right now. In our case, um, the world runs on top of Azure. Power Platform runs on top of Azure. What investments, what do we do? How do we plan for? What are our contingency plans for fault or disasters and things along those lines? Oh man, you built it up like you were going to ask me this super difficult, tough question, but you gave me a softball, Ken. Come on. You know me better than that. As I said, when we first touched on like building a reliable service, this is a, a really, really deep space. But the key things I want to call out are we build on Azure because it provides us the best scalable and reliable tools available for an infrastructure. So when we think about those topics I mentioned before, fault isolation, one of the things that we're investing in very heavily is zone redundancy, right? Ensuring that all like our the compute, the components that actually do the calculations that deliver the service are spread across multiple redundant zones. The data, the, the customer information, your data is spread in such a way that when there is a failure, there's near instantaneous switch to the healthy copy. You know, those things are what allows us to continue to improve over time as we've gotten bigger, as we've gotten more complex. Um, we've also incorporated more and more of those reliability and resiliency strategies that we tell Azure customers to go do, right? We take those same lessons that the Azure engineers are developing and we incorporate them in our own product. So for example, when there is a fault within one of the components of our infrastructure, we receive an alert and immediately we engage some engineers to go take a look and say, hey, is this alert a false positive? Is this you know, really an impact? What is the customer impact? How are we going to recover from this? And then we engage communications. Hey, do we need to tell customers about this fault? 
all the way through recovery. And it's all enabled by, again, those resiliency tools within Azure that allows us not only to build the service, but know what's happening happening within the service itself. So Tim, if I can interject just quickly. Yeah. You talked about the severities. What are the severities? Four, three, two, one, A, B, C, D. Hmm. How does a customer determine what is, what's the severity? Yeah, and and this is and I'm going to try to keep this. This is another one of those things. There's like a ton of material to go through, but I'm going to try to keep it short. Customers are probably familiar with the severities they see within the support portal. You know, there's these Sev A, Sev B, Sev C. Yeah. Inside Microsoft, we have a classification system of severities from zero through four. But one thing I want to stress with folks is that. This isn't an indication of priority. You know, there are different timelines that are established. The The severity that we describe when we're talking about events inside Microsoft is what's the scope? How broadly impacting is the event? What's the risk to customers? Because that allows us to classify things to understand where our repairs go, right? For something that's relatively small or relatively narrow, there's a certain set of repair items that we're going to go build off of that. For something that's large or more broadly impacting, we need better visibility into those failure states so we can take those learnings and spread them across different places to prevent potential impact. So the severity is, you know, when we discuss severity from the service perspective, it's much more about the scope of impact rather than the importance or the disruptiveness of the impact. When a customer is looking at a severity with a support case, that's usually tied to how disruptive to their business the, the, the issue is. So we kind of use that word, we overload the meaning a little bit when we cross that service customer boundary, but it's something that does come up and it's something that's important to discuss because we really don't want people to feel like when they see a SEV1, you know, when, when someone says SEV1, that doesn't mean that everything is on fire and people are running around and we we call up extra engineers, right? It, it means that the, the scope of impact is a little bit larger. Tim, I, I just, I, there's so much more I want to ask you, and I think we're going to have to have you back on, but I'm looking at time and I know uh, there, I think, I don't want to burn out our, our listeners <laughs> here. So we're going to save some of the excitement for a follow-up podcast. But uh, Tim, as we land the plane, is there anything that, two questions, any questions or topic that we didn't hit that you most want to make sure we share with our listeners? And two, any resources that they should check out that we can include in our show notes? Yeah, um, absolutely. The In summary, I want to share, you know, we hear customers say a lot, I don't, I didn't know you do comps. They have this expectation that we're just kind of a consumer service. You know, they just have to figure it out themselves. That's not true. We do, and we really want people to, to use them. We want them to read them, both the proactive messages and the, the reactive messages. Like I said, the policies and communication channels article on the docs site will include that link. Um, I encourage folks to go take a look at it. It's got uh, links out to all of the other pages that give a complete view of all of the different surfaces you can go see those messages on. And the final thing I want to say is just thank you to all the customers that are building and relying on our services to build their own businesses, because this is honestly a transformative suite of, of, of services and applications. And it's had me excited since we started doing it to see how much and how loved it is with the folks who are building things. So thank you for the, for this chance to come and talk. And I do hope we get a chance to connect again. Tim, I think 
One, yes, absolutely. We would be almost nothing without our community. Every time I go to a conference, I feel like I'm a rock star because the community is just like, yeah, like, what's going on? How you guys doing? Absolutely. Like positively love it. I am Tim. I don't know when, um, hopefully sometime after the holidays, but we'd love to have you back. Perhaps we can talk about um, the best way to cook black eyed peas and other things along those lines, um, as well as a fellow connoisseur of fine things edible. So once again, my name is Ken Aguilar. I'm Wendy Haddad. She is. I am not Sean, right? Who is at Ignite. Everyone thank Tim and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks folks.